0: Welcome to episode 119 of Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius, who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. I'm your host, Cassius, and together with our panelists from the EpicureanFriends.com forum, we'll walk you through the ancient Epicurean texts, and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. We encourage you to study Epicurus for yourself, and we suggest the best place to start is the book, Epicurus and His Philosophy, by Canadian professor, Norman DeWitt. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at EpicureanFriends.com, where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. Today, we continue our review of Epicurus's letter to Herodotus, and we move further into fundamental physics and the atoms as means of perception. Now let's join Martin reading today's text.
1: Moreover, hearing too results when a current is carried off from the object speaking or sounding or making a noise or causing in any other way a sensation of hearing. Now this current is split up into particles, each like the whole, which at the same time preserve a correspondence of qualities with one another and the unity of character which stretches right back to the object which emitted the sound. This unity is which in most cases produces comprehension in the recipient or, if not, merely makes manifest the presence of the external object. For without the transference from the object of some correspondence of qualities, comprehension of this nature could not result. We must not then suppose that the actual air is molded into shape by the voice which is emitted or by other similar sounds, for it will be very far from being so acted upon by it but that the blow which takes place inside us when we emit our voice causes at once a squeezing out of certain particles which produce a stream of breath of such a character as to afford us the sensation of hearing. Furthermore, we must suppose that smell, too, just like hearing, would never bring about any sensation unless there were certain particles carried off from the object of suitable size to stir this sense organ, some of them in a manner disorderly and alien to it, others in a regular manner and akin in nature. Moreover, we must suppose that the atoms do not possess any of the qualities belonging to perceptible things, except shape, weight, and size, and all that necessarily goes with shape. For so every quality changes, but the atoms do not change at all, since there must needs be something which remains solid and indissoluble at the dissolution of compounds which can cause changes not changes into the non-existent or from the non-existent, but changes affected by the shifting of position of some particles and by the addition or departure of others. For this reason, it is essential that the bodies which shift their position should be imperishable and should not possess the nature of what changes, but parts and configuration of their own. For thus, much must needs remain constant, for even in things perceptible to us which change their shape by the withdrawal of matter, it is seen that shape remains to them, whereas the qualities do not remain in the changing object, in the way in which shape is left behind, but are lost from the entire body. Now, these particles which are left behind are sufficient to cause the differences in compound bodies, since it is essential that some things should be left behind and not be destroyed into the non-existent. Moreover, we must not either suppose that every size exists among the atoms, in order that the evidence of phenomena may not contradict us, but we must suppose that there are some variations of size. For if this be the case, we can give a better account of what occurs in our feelings and sensations. But the existence of atoms of every size is not required to explain the differences, qualities in things. And at the same time, some atoms would be bound to come within our ken and be visible. But this is never seen to be the case, nor is it possible to imagine how an atom would become visible. Besides this, we must not suppose that in a limited body there can be infinite parts or parts of every degree of smallness. Therefore, we must not only do away with division into smaller and smaller parts to infinity in order that we may not make all things weak. And so in the composition of aggregate bodies, be compelled to crush and squander the things that exist into the non-existent. But we must not either suppose that in limited bodies, there is a possibility of continuing to infinity in passing even to smaller and smaller parts. Okay, Martin, thank you for reading that text
0: for today. It looks like we basically have two major sections to talk about. The first of what you've read today up through or about line 54 or 55 is going to continue to talk about the use of atoms moving through the air and how we perceive things through that mechanism. And then after that, we have a couple of observations about the size of atoms, including their limits and how big they can be and how small they can be. And there's definite philosophical controversies that those issues address. But before we get to that, let's continue with a discussion of hearing, which also occurs, according to Epicurus, when a stream of atoms—I say here the word Bailey has used as current— is carried off from the object making a noise, and that that current is split up into particles, each like the whole, which at the same time preserve a correspondence of qualities that stretches back to the original object, which emitted the sound. And his point there being in 53, that without the transference from the object of some correspondence of qualities, there'd be no way for us to comprehend what we're perceiving. And then we're going to turn to smelling right after that. The general issue still under discussion is that perception is occurring through the movement of particles from place to place.
2: Right, okay. So the idea here is that like with the images that we talked about, there's particles that are from the object that are sort of streaming off it constantly. And so in the case of images we have these what some translations call films of atoms streaming off and then now with hearing um, it's the same kind of thing as you've got sort of sound particles, I guess, or a, a current of particles streaming out of the object making the sound or speaking. That's what he's saying here is what I gather. Yeah, the current that's, is split up into particles. That's what I'm
1: reading. Yes. it seems as I had already the correct idea that we are just uh, modulating the the air, and uh, he is rejecting uh, that one. but but nevertheless, his take is a natural explanation. So for the consistency of his own theory, it doesn't matter which model is more accurate. It's just he has a working
2: model. So before we, we started recording today, I, I mentioned this uh, story that I had heard. I was watching this British television show called QI, which is hosted by Sandy Toxvig. I guess is her name. And it's, it's a wonderful show. If you haven't seen it, I, it's all over YouTube. But in a particular episode that I was watching, they were talking about the invention of the radio by this guy named Giulielmo Marconi. And what was interesting about Marconi, a couple of things. One, when he invented the radio and, and received, I think, a Nobel Prize for it, he frankly admitted that he had no idea how it worked. And and he couldn't <laughs> he couldn't give an explanation for the mechanism. He had created this thing, but wasn't quite sure in his own mind how it actually functioned. Which is kind of wonderful. But The other interesting thing about Marconi is that he had this idea about how sound worked at the most fundamental level. And what he thought was that sound never went away, that it just got quieter and quieter and quieter over time. And so that all around us, if we could only hear it, is the sort of the vestige or the impression of every sound that ever was and every word that was ever spoken. And he had this idea that if you, you could create something that could lit, sort of listen in on what this article in The Atlantic calls the Museum of Lost Sounds, that you could hear human speech from millennia ago. You know, we could, we could hear uh, Epicurus uh, teaching in his garden, as it were, if we could just isolate that one signal from all the noise that surrounds it. And he had this idea, Marconi, that um, he wanted to listen to Jesus delivering the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> of course, never, never successfully constructed a device that could do it because what we now know about sound is that it's sort of it's a, it's a form of energy that gets absorbed um, as it passes through objects and that kind of thing. So there is no sort of trace of of sounds and and uh, speech from the ancient world that's available to us, but he had the interesting idea that there was, and I just f- I found that absolutely fascinating. And it almost seems reminiscent to some ideas that we get in Epicurean physics. And yes. the idea of, of images that are, you know, coming to us from the intermundia, the space between worlds and uh, that kind of thing. So I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. Um, yes,
1: exactly. Agreed. And another thing complementary to this one, I heard there was uh, used to be a research project where someone tried to, to detect whether those uh, which do the clay forming of pots by turning that pot around while it's formed, th- that he thought that when they do the pattern on this one, the, the, the chisel may be modulated by the speech. So he tried to extract sound information from this modulation so, so that he could hear what the potters talked while they were making the pot. Oh, that's fascinating. Unfortunately, he didn't get any result out from that. So Apparently, the impregnation was too weak to be molded into the pot.
0: I can't remember if I've either heard that myself, Martin, or whether it's just so a brilliant thought that just like these old gramophones, that's the way they were reproducing sound is by etching
1: into some other object. White yeah.
2: cylinders, they used. Yeah, for,
1: yeah. Think. Yeah. So, so it would be great if we, had, if we could eventually find something which recorded this. So so because I would really know how Latin was originally really put
0: <laughs> <laughs> A mystery of the ages is how they
2: really sounded. I just love that kind of thing.
0: <laughs> yeah. Marconi's thoughts, they seem to make a lot of sense to me, I guess, in my non-technical way of looking at things. But, Mark, I'm not sure what the current... You said Marconi didn't really understand what he'd invented and how it was working. Is there a simple way to explain what radio is? You know, there was this old theory, too, as well, right, Martin, about ether, that what was going on was vibrations in ether. I don't, I don't know how long ago that became obsolete, but what is the right explanation of what radio is doing? Is it actually transferring something from one place to another, or is it just sympathetically vibrating? In some way that induces, like tuning forks.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it, it, you maybe call it similar. Like that. So, so what you need is, uh, of course, a radio transmitter. So that emits electromagnetic electromagnetic radiation. And then, in order to make this into a radio that, that we can hear what, what what someone says, we modulate the either the amplitude, the frequency, or something something what what we, what will in some way affect uh, uh, the signal. So we, we modulate this one onto the electromagnetic wave and then at the receiving side, you have then that receiver which decodes that information out from there.
0: But is something traveling from place to place?
1: Presumably so, yeah. is, what, what so, is yeah. it that's traveling? Electromagnetic waves. So, so it's equivalent of photons. In, because for, at that scale, normally the wave picture is the one which is the most adequate. But there are actually areas where even at these rather low frequencies, we can operate uh, still with a photon uh, picture, like, like an NMR. When they use uh, electromagnetic fields, an NMR that is often described for understanding uh, like uh, a very uh, low frequency photon. But the corresponding thing is then, of course, that is then uh, a, a rather, compared to light, a long wave uh, electromagnetic uh, radiation.
0: Well, to try to keep this in sort of a philosophical discussion as opposed to too much physics, I gather that there's always been this tension between, again, whether the universe is sort of solid and whether what's happening is some kind of transfer of vibrations all along the chain without the individual links of the chain moving, or which of those two is exactly correct. For example, when you're talking about tuning forks and to take the electronics out of it, With tuning forks, you start one vibrating. Is the first one that causes the second one to vibrate, vibrating the air between the two of them? Or is there something traveling between two? I'm hoping that tuning forks is a a clear enough example. My understanding is that you can strike one and and another one that is tuned to the same frequency will start vibrating some distance away, right? Is that the
1: way that works? So, so this is how uh, we just a demonstration how how it works when we hear something uh, someone talking uh, so so that uh, there's one which excites and then we have uh, these uh, uh, in our ear we have a uh, 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 sort of uh, different uh, wavelength uh, resonators which detect this and uh, then the one with the right frequency then, uh, they get excited, so and, and that is the same thing. So that means the the, the air pressure gets modulated by the fork, which originates uh, that sound, and then uh, when it reaches the other fork, it it gets excited to mechanical vibrations accordingly. So a tuning fork is. You said modulating or
0: vibrating the air. And so the atoms that are in the air between the two tuning forks are actually moving around. And, but again, do they travel from the first fork to the second fork, or do they just simply vibrate among themselves in place?
1: I mean, of course. I mean, air is a fluid. That means the atoms, or rather the molecules, are bouncing around all the time. And it's then this pressure modulation, what you get from the movement of the fork, which is like a water wave. No? If you have a wave in water, then also the individual water molecule doesn't travel all the way like all the way like the wave. It moves approximately in a circle or something like this. No? Mm-hmm. But the signal, it travels across the whole ocean. When you said signal the, that travels across the ocean, you're talking about radio. You know the wave, the wave. No? So so mm-hmm. that means that. Uh, uh, if, if you, or if you can more easily see it in a pond, you know, so if, if there's no winds and the pond is quiet, then you throw a stone in, then you can see that uh, that stone when it plunged in, it excites some wave, and that one then travels across the lake or the pond.
0: Well, it's probably a mistake to go too much further into the technical science part of all this, but in the Epicurean material that we talk about, I think, Joshua, you were using the example of images traveling from the intermundia where the gods supposedly live, and I know there's another example I see regularly about how the images of those who are long dead and whose Bones or molding in the ground still seem to be visible. So It's not uh, images coming from the coffins underneath the ground, I think is what they're saying. I think they're saying that older images of them when they were walking around are still floating through the air, Marconi-like, to be seen later on. I guess this is what they were thinking.
2: Yeah, I, I am familiar with that, that idea as well. Mm-hmm. One other thing I learned from QI, and I don't know if this is relevant either, but the first, when you're know when you put on hold on the phone, the first on hold music was created accidentally when this guy named Alfred uh, Levy, or I think it's Levy, I don't know how you pronounce his name, he discovered a problem with the phone lines at his factory. There was a loose wire touching a metal girder on the building, which turned the building itself into a giant receiver. And there was a radio station right next door so that when they were putting people on hold on the phone, what <laughs> they were hearing on the phone was this interference from the radio station would play over. And so it was it invented totally accidentally. but
0: Never heard that story either. Well, quickly, there's it looks like just one sentence on smell that we could never smell anything unless there were certain particles carried off from the object of suitable size to stir the sense organ. I guess probably smell and odors are the easiest for us to agree. Martin, on smell, there's no doubt, but that particles
1: move from the flower to our nose, right? Yes, exactly. So in this case, the molecules actually come to us. And uh, so so with this model, Epicurus was pretty much correct.
0: You know, when I started the introduction today, I, I think I've made a significant mistake because now my eye catches on 54. It's not just a matter of going from hearing and smelling up to the sizes of the atoms, but I think 54 is really one of the most important issues in some of the canonics because here he's talking about We must suppose that the atoms do not possess any of the qualities belonging to perceptible things. And here's this list of what are the attributes of atoms that I regularly forget. Shape, weight, and size, and all that necessarily goes with shape. And then he says, for every quality changes, but the atoms don't change at all. That's this issue of properties versus qualities that are, I think, described in Lucretius in Book 1, There's a discussion of Helen of Troy and the story of the Trojan War that discusses this issue as well. But it's probably a pretty important thing for us to discuss that this is this issue of the atoms have eternal reality that does not change at an atomic level. But everything of which atoms are made, which is everything that we live in in our universe, does not have an eternal, unchanging characteristic. It has characteristics that are contextual according to how the atoms are arranged and moving, and as he says here, their shape, weight, and size is is, is his listing of the eternal qualities. But this goes pretty deep into issues of relativism versus absolutism and so forth. Because I think what he's saying here is that every quality changes, but the atoms don't change at all. This could take us in many directions to discuss nihilism versus lots of other things. But the whole issue of just because atoms are the only things that are eternally the same, does that mean that they're invested with some kind of uh, mystical quality that we should worship them or, or anything like that? Or... Does it mean that just because we're not invested with eternal qualities, does that make us somehow inferior or less important than atoms? Just because our bodies and our lives are made of constantly moving atoms, what's the implication of that? And it probably goes into this issue of Plato's eternal forms and even Aristotle's assertions about essences being in things. The classic example of what we're talking about here would be color. That the atoms do not have color themselves, but we observe color because of the context in which we observe the bodies that are made of atoms.
2: Let me read to you a quote which I've read before from Democritus, and he says, by convention sweet and by convention bitter, by convention hot and by convention cold, by convention color, but in reality atoms and void. Precisely what you've been saying. He's got this idea that the atoms have only just very few physical characteristics and that everything else that we perceive about matter comes either from a combination of the atoms or from, I guess, maybe some other kind of confusion. Or But for the most part, the atoms themselves don't have these qualities. That seems to have been the idea. Is qualities the right word? Did I just use the word?
0: I think, no, no, <laughs> I think you've used exactly the right word. And this is also where I get into this issue about the word accident because the word accident is frequently used in some of the translators in Lucretius, they'll say that the color is accidental. But I think the word that's in Lucretius anyway is eventum, which to me the word event is a better word to use because it's not accidental in the sense of random. It is tightly controlled by the combination of the atoms and the shape and how they're moving and so forth. And so a color of an object in a particular context it's not an accident. It's not going to change color for you in the same context, but it's an event that is not eternally the same. It's not part of an eternal property of that atom or the combination of atoms that we're looking at. Martin, tell me what's going through your mind here. This this could be a really deep subject to talk about for a little while, but we need to kind of clarify the significance of it.
1: Yeah, I, what, what this color uh, may boil down to is a uh, spectrum of a molecule. I mean, it may be modulated by all kinds of things, but let's let, let's uh, take it the more simple case that is given by the molecule. And also, as long as this molecule exists, it will have that color. So that means uh, this one is associated with this particular uh, 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 molecule and all other molecules of the same uh, uh composition will have the same color uh, and under the same circumstances so so that means this one does not go away it's a property of this this type of molecule the part i would address of what i just heard you say is under
0: the same circumstances the molecule is going to have the same color when viewed under the same circumstances
1: because exactly. it, so it, uh, uh, if it's in a matrix then the matrix may uh, change the the impression we get from the color can become a lot more complicated. No? So so like, like when gold particles are finally dispersed in glass, you, you get a red color. By varying the size, you, you can also get different colors. No? So so, so uh, uh, that means there is some effect from putting things together. Or when many molecules come together into a mass, no? then uh, the, the way these, these are put together in, say, a molecule crystal, may have again different effects uh, on, on the color. No? Uh, but if we just go go looking at the color of say, say what a molecular gas has, no? so that one it may typically be attributed to just uh, one molecule, uh, as of one type of molecule, and uh, this type of molecule in this uh, as a gas will then uh, as a, in, in the form of a, an assembly of mole- molecules a gas form, th- that they will then at, uh, always the same color will have the same color.
2: So what I'm thinking of here, and before we get off the smell issue is that there was this idea for a long time that if you were going to import uh, cocaine illegally into a country and you wanted to avoid uh, the uh, smeller dogs uh, finding the drugs, that you would put coffee grounds all around your cocaine and that the dogs would just smell you know, the coffee or something. In fact, what we know is that dogs have an extremely uh, well-attuned sense of smell. And so they don't just smell the coffee. They do smell the coffee, but dogs have an ability that humans don't really have to isolate different smells that are coming into the, you know, sort of into a mixture at the same time. And so they would be able to to take in this mixture of smells and isolate, okay, this one's the cocaine, this one's the coffee, you know, this one's the grass outside or something. And so a lot of what we're talking about here seems to depend a little bit. On the ability of the sense organ and how finely tuned it is to be able to perceive the thing that we're talking about. I think there's this shrimp called, what's that shrimp called? Mantis, rainbow mantis shrimp or something. And it's thought that because they have the way their eyes work with rods and cones, and they've got this other thing as well that allows them to see, that they can see colors that humans can't see. They can see an astonishing range of colors. I don't know if that's true or not, but. So there is a sense in which the sense organ that perceives these qualities or these accidents or these events kind of changes the discussion a little bit about them. Probably, I I assume what we have now is maybe technology that can sort of cut through all this and see things or perceive them more finely than any eye. I don't know whether that's true either. Yeah, of course. We have photometry, so
1: now we can define colors. So, uh, based on uh, objective measurements. And then, then they do no more, more, more depend on the particular, how to say this, so different individuals may have different color perception. So we, we have this phenomenon of color blindness. So, so those people will, of course, perceive color differently than people with uh, which are not color blind. No? And by using this photometric chart, no? then uh, we can add objectivity to the color description.
2: And if you've got a spectroscope, right, that can take in uh, light from any source and break it down into a spectrum. So you can point your spectroscope at uh, like a fluorescent light or something, and that'll break down what is it, the frequency or the, the waves of the light, or how does that work?
1: <laughs> well, uh, depending on what you are, the way you want to describe this, you can use frequency or wavelengths or uh, electron volt, whatever. Uh, it's it just that you have uh, there uh, on on a spectrum scale, then something uh, which is then on the abscissa, and then the intensity is a function of that one. And that of course would be a more, a more accurate description than merely giving a color. Right? So so then of course quite different spectra can give then effectively a similar color impression. And of course with the spectrum we can go as far away from the uh,
0: visible range as we watch. I want to jump back in here on another angle on this that I always come back to one nihilism. of these things. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I always find a stoic hiding under every bed and I'm always looking for sniffing out problems and so forth. So Joshua knows where I'm going with nihilism. And here's where I would jump back into it. Martin used the term that we can, using modern technology, be more objective in The way we describe colors or quantify colors, we can measure them in a way that we didn't have the ability to before. And when I hear the word, we can give them an objective description as opposed to a subjective description. Maybe it's just me. But when I hear that, obviously, an objective description of color is better, is superior, is in some way more important than a subjective measure of color would be. And of course, where I'm going to go with that is back to Joshua's quote from Democritus about, can you remind me of that again, Joshua? How does it go? By convention something, by...
2: Yeah, yeah. He says, by convention sweet, by convention bitter, by convention hot, by convention cold, by convention color, in reality, atoms and void.
0: Okay, okay. And and that, in reality, that's what vests. When I hear that, I I, I hear this vibration... Of almost mysticism, almost a religious awe, almost a superiority of a level of existence that I, I want reality. I don't want convention. I don't really care, Joshua, what you and Martin think about whether something's sweet or not. Convention is is inferior you see, I'm, I'm of course being uh, sarcastic <laughs> not sarcastic I'm, just, I'm getting carried away in the way i'm describing it but you see, i'm trying to make the point that i think at least in culture philosophy whatever there's this idea that convention is something that is less desirable than the objective reality anybody given a choice between objective reality versus convention I think that's one of those things that you're sort of programmed in in a certain, or certain people are programmed, I'm programmed to think that I want to know the reality. I don't care what we're doing by convention. And I think it leads to this question of, if there's really nothing real in the world but atoms, then everything that is in our own existence is convention, which implies to certain minds, like, like my small mind, it implies to my mind, it's a stoic position. If everything that we think about and deal with in reality, if all of our emotions, if all of our sensations and so forth are just by convention, then that tells me that I ought to be able to control those things by my willpower, by bringing my mind into tune with everybody else who has the same conventional viewpoint. But even to say The word conventional itself is a negative word. Stop me, somebody like Joshua, if I go too far with that. But (laughs) doesn't the word conventional have a negative implication in many ways, Joshua? Would you disagree or see where I'm going? What does it mean? Where am I going with that?
2: For me, I, I think the big issue here is you'd almost have to tie it into the ethics. And you certainly have people who think that an ethic or a morality that is derived from human convention or that is subjective or relativistic, is inferior to one that is objective in their minds or absolute, as as one handed down by God. Although there's a lot of problems with that argument as well. But certainly there is the idea that things that we merely decide for ourselves, you know, a color that we think is pleasing to the eye, for example, would be less important to some people than a color that was the same color as the event horizon of a black hole objectively or something something like that some ridiculous Mm -hmm, claim mm -hmm. but if i'm going to paint my room i just want to paint a room in a color that i like and it doesn't have to be the most objectively beautiful color that there is it just has to be a color that i like or that goes with my things and
0: the idea that there is an objectively beautiful color is is a question So yeah, yeah. If, if Joshua, you're very good with poetry, you compose a poem and I say to you, Joshua, that's a very conventional poem. <laughs> that's not a good <laughs> state. That's not a high praise of your poetry.
2: Right. Right. Yeah. You got a good point there. I, I think it, another word that is sometimes used that way is uh, competent. <laughs> like, yes. Yes. It, yes.
0: It, I, you know, it's a, meaning, meaning you're meaning you're very adequate, adequate.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Satisfactory. But sometimes also meaning, you know, well, he did a competent job. You know, yeah, that, yes. that's not high praise necessarily. That's no, like, it's it's he, not. He met the minimum standard that we've put in place here, but he hasn't. There's no flourish beyond that. So, mm-hmm. I see where you're driving at. I'm I'm struggling to come up with a good uh, well. Knowledge. The...
0: Well, the point that I've come back to in many different ways and over different passages and so forth, but my programming comes from, what is it, the book of something from St. Paul, where they're talking about the weak and beggarly elements that you're a slave of. You know, I've just been programmed from early years of Christianity to think that the atoms are just dirt. Atoms are dirt. And when I can say something is dirt, I'm not praising it either by saying right. that. I'm, yeah.
2: I'm being very negative about it. But just as when you say that there's no objectively beautiful color, and I agree with you, it's also true that when people make claims about, I guess, objective moral attributes or an objective virtue, there's a very heavy element there of paying no attention to the man behind the curtain. There is no objective morality. I don't think that's true. And it doesn't make sense to argue in my mind, whether objective morality would be better or worse than a morality derived from human convention, because one of them is not an option. So.
0: It's not an option. And, and this goes back to this, this the discussion of the sense organs again. Okay, I think it's right to say that there's no objectively beautiful color or no objectively beautiful statue or something. But at the same time, people are wired in largely similar ways, and it is possible to generalize and say that in general, a majority or larger numbers of people are going to think something is pleasurable or beautiful versus something that's not. It's like there's always this balance. If you get radically in one direction or the other, you're not taking into account some part of reality because there may not be anything that's eternal except the atoms themselves, But on the other hand, the only thing that makes sense to you are those things that you can perceive through your sense organs and your status as a human being, which is the subject of thousands of years of of evolution and cultural adaptation. And, And so it is true that even though there's no universal God that's describing one particular thing as objectively the most beautiful in the world on the other hand it's possible to generalize as human beings about the type of things we're going to find pleasing and displeasing pain and pleasure do work largely the same way with most people
2: and that goes to one of the comments i made to you after we recorded last week which which was that the color green for example tends to be uh, more restful to the human Mm -hmm. eye and the color red can stimulate appetites and all that so You can speak in general terms. And I think that when we talk about, I keep going back to this issue of ethics and morality. I think that when we talk about human convention and ethics and morality, apart from absolutist claims about ethics and morality, we're still talking uh, in terms that are general to most people for the most part. Most law codes throughout human history, going back You know, 3000 years, there's there's usually, you know, certain advice in there not to murder other people, for example. That's something that just we could almost make a general statement about the applicability of that moral argument to the broadest number of people. And most people are going to agree with it on one one level or another or, or according to one definition or another.
0: Maybe I'm personally just stuck in being seven years old and listening to some preacher. I think it is Galatians 4.9 is the one that just rings always through my mind. Yes, here we go. King James Version, Galatians 4.9. But now after ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage. That sets me off. (laughs) I, I think that has to be. That is an argument that people, at least those who were brought up in a Christian background, need to have an understanding of where they're coming from, And what the reaction to it ought to be and how paying attention to the supposedly weak and beggarly elements does not, in fact, make you a slave, but in fact, is the truth of the way the universe operates.
2: We just had Earth Day was the other day. and. One of the things that always comes up when people use the phrase Mother Earth, for example, and Lucretius justifies that usage of calling the Earth Mother because she gives rise to all things. Not that we should worship her, but just as a sort of poetic appellation, it makes sense from his point of view. But one thing you get on Earth Day with with people using phrases like Mother Earth is uh, that really sets certain Christians off. They don't want to hear about Mother Earth Earth as a fellow creation from the father she's not the mother and so you've got this absolutist claim on the one hand and then you've got human convention on the other and that's just always going to be the way it is i think i don't think we're ever Mm -hmm. going to get around galatians 4 9 problem
0: Well, I'm falling into the trap of my Nietzsche beating a dead horse issue of this nihilism question. So we don't want to cut short the rest of what's out there for us to discuss. 55 is beginning the discussion of how the qualities and properties, it's another variation of the quality and property thing, I think, because he's talking about the changing in size Martin, you've got a position on what
1: he's talking about in 55. I couldn't think of an example of what he refers to there. So so this is something I don't really understand what he wants to tell
2: you. The way I read this, he's saying that for even in things perceptible to us, which change their shape by with the withdrawal of matter, it is seen that shape remains to them. Whereas the qualities do not remain in the changing object in the way in which shape is left behind, but are lost from the entire body. So if you were to take a block of cheese, for example, and sort of cut away and cut away and cut away, the shape is changing, but it always has a shape. But eventually you're going to get down to a level on the atomic level where you've taken so much away that you start to lose qualities like, you know, you can no longer smell it maybe, or you can no longer detect visible color but as you keep pulling away there's always always going to be a shape and so this is kind of an argument that he's making that while atoms don't have color they don't have sweetness or bitterness they don't have a lot of these other qualities they will always always have shape and he yeah. says in other places that you know um some at, like water atoms are uh, are smooth so they glide over each other and that's why it's liquid, and then you've got maybe steel atoms that have hooks in them, so once they get locked into this rigid structure, they'll vibrate, but they don't move a whole lot. I think he says spicy food has spikes or something in it that mm-hmm. that strike the tongue or that kind of thing. So it's the shape of things that remains when all of the other qualities have gone, the shape and the size. Shape, weight,
0: and size, according to line 54 there, seem to be the, the full list. And, of course, I guess the shape and the weight and the size of the object are going to change as atoms are withdrawn from it. But that at the very end, you're, even if you just come down to a couple of atoms left, they're going to have some kind of shape, weight and size left to them. But they don't have any more of the color or the smell or things like that that we observe through our senses. I think what you said, Josh, was a good interpretation of
2: it. Maybe I should have used an apple as my example. You start out with red. And then as you take stuff away it starts to turn pale and then you get mm-hmm. down to the seeds and those are brown mm-hmm. but get down to the atomic level there's no color left at all is what he's arguing
0: which again probably does relate if you wanted to link it to the issues of is there yellowness inside something that's yellow is there yellowness at all which i think plato would assert that there is yellowness and. Even Aristotle, as I understand it, would say that there is an essence of yellow that's within certain things. And Epicurus is insisting that there is no ness of things within the atoms when you divide them down. There's not atoms of apples and atoms of oranges. There's just
2: atoms. Is that homeoimery or something? I yes. Think yeah, I think it's the, something like that. That bread is made out of bread atoms and... Something about laughing
0: particles as well, that laughing men are not made out of laughing particles or something like
2: that. Oh, yeah. Or you strike fire out of wood. It's not that there's fire particles in the wood. You know, there's a there's a reaction of some kind going on here. But the atoms are more or less the same in the wood and in the fire and in the cheese and in the apple.
0: Maybe one of the most important illustrations of this part would be the issue of intelligence, that there are not intelligent particles. Talking about whether something's yellow or red or whatever is one thing, but ultimately this comes back to that issue of whether living things are made of living particles or not, which, again, I think Epicurus would pretty clearly say here is, is not the case. There's not an essence of life in the sense of a living particle. There's just particles that come together and have an emerging quality of life when combined in certain ways. This is the kind of thing that ultimately would be his argument for why there's no eternal life or why there's no soul or spirit that can
2: exist outside the body. And also why we know that when the atoms in your body at some future date reconstruct into a similar mm -hmm. form, if they do, um, it, it still won't be you because when they dissolved, you were gone.
0: Well, as we move on towards the end, we're going to get into the issue of size of the atoms and that we must not suppose that there are every size of atoms, which I think is targeted towards the large issue. And it sounds to me like perhaps what we're basically saying in these last paragraphs is that there's a limit upward and a limit downward on the size of the atoms themselves. So it would probably be interesting to talk about his rationale for reaching that conclusion because, of course, we're still talking in the context that we can't see or touch individual atoms. So we're not able to directly perceive that there's a limit upward or downward on the sizes of atoms. So given our inability to observe them directly through our eyes, what is the basis for our conclusion that there's a limit upward and downward on the size of atoms?
2: Well, I think that you made mention to it a few episodes ago, we don't see atoms on the visible level. Uh, You know, you never see an atom the size of a loaf of bread or something. So there has to be an upper bound to how big the atoms can be. Otherwise, uh, we would be able to see them with the naked eye.
0: I guess is this well described as the inconceivability argument? Is it simply inconceivable because we don't see certain examples of them? Or does the word inconceivable convey something else? And of course, I don't have the word inconceivable <laughs> here in front of me to to cite a particular location where there's where they're talking about that. but 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 I guess here it is in 56. The existence of atoms of every size is not required to explain. Uh, and at the same time, some atoms would be bound to come within our kin and be visible. but this is never seen to be the case nor is it possible to imagine how an atom could become visible. That's the linkage there. To me, I wish we could drill down on that particular language, but it almost seems like he's combining two separate proofs or arguments here. Number one is it's never seen to be the case, but then there's this additional argument that it's not possible to imagine how an atom could become visible. That's always more difficult for me because the word imagine tends to in my mind, to be something that's unlimited. It's almost like you could imagine anything, but maybe he's saying something different there. Why is it impossible to imagine how an atom
2: could become visible? Okay, so you, I'm down a rabbit hole now. You mentioned the inconceivability argument. And Which I think what is
0: I, this last one. Go ahead.
2: What I'm reading here is that the inconceivability argument, I don't know if this is related at all, um, or if there's two different arguments that go under this name because it says here Barclay's main objective in the inconceivability argument is to show that material substances cannot exist without the mind and are therefore mind-dependent. If it's considered to be mind-dependent, then the object does not actually exist in the world, but instead exists in the mind as an idea. Barclay is an anti-materialist, which means that he believes the only things that exist are minds and what is in them. I think that this Berkeley, which we in America would pronounce Berkeley, is the guy who the university is named after, I think.
0: Yeah, and I think he's associated with a radical, skeptical viewpoint, I think. It's kind of nihilism there to say that everything is created by your mind, basically, is that—
2: yeah, he says ordinary objects are only collections of ideas which are mind dependent, that there are no material substances. There are only finite mental substances and infinite mental substance, and the infinite mental substance is God.
0: Yeah, I think you're talking about somebody who's as radically different from Epicurus as you could possibly be, which is why it's good to know what somebody like that says so you can have
2: an answer to it. George Berkeley. 1685, mm. 1753, and like I say, uh, we now we now pronounce his name Berkeley, as in Berkeley University, as in University of California Berkeley, yeah. Berkeley, yeah.
0: Martin, are you familiar with Berkeley?
2: It's a University, yeah,
0: yeah. I have an understanding that's I, I do not have the ability to talk intelligently about Berkeley, but I do have this understanding that Joshua has has clearly. You know, he's put his finger on somebody who is right in the middle of all this controversy, I think, from an Epicurean perspective, on the wrong side of the controversy. But I don't I don't have enough knowledge to talk about him intelligently. So it sounds like you don't either, Martin, or do you?
1: I know the university, but that's the guy.
0: Yeah, well, he is somebody that if, if somebody wanted to research this issue, they would want to read into what Berkeley's uh objections to materialism were and where he ended up and so with those dates joshua he predates nietzsche then significantly
2: oh yeah yeah he was around at the time i think he was uh sort of in the john locke
0: era mm. um I think you raised it because you were talking about the conceivability issue. I'm looking at Hicks's version of 56 here says, which is never observed to occur, nor can we conceive how its occurrence should be possible. I think there's an Epicurean pattern of referring to conceivability. That is why I raised the question, but how it fits with Berkeley, I do not know. And I, tend to think it's considerably different but
2: i'll tell you one thing everybody listening to this podcast now is thinking of uh, the princess bride so. <laughs> what, and why is that have you seen that that movie
0: yes but not enough to catch every line of
2: it You've i've seen it at least the once This sicilian guy who's like every time he talks he's like inconceivable yeah, okay <laughs> and then finally the internet <laughs> meme response is you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> ah, yes. Does it mean that you can't imagine it? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. But of course, he was using it about things which are very easy to imagine.
0: Well, that's the difficulty of what we're talking about here, because I, I do think it's pretty interesting how when they do use it in this Epicurean context, he seems to be linking it to... You know, he's distinguishing it from saying that you've never seen it to be the case in the past or it's never seen to be the case in the present. I guess maybe that links you in time to the question of, well, just because you haven't seen it in the past or the present, does that tell you that you cannot see it in the future? So that when he starts to say, nor is it possible to imagine or possible to conceive how it could become visible, that's the question that I'm not able to give a good explanation for.
2: It would be something of an inductive argument to say that no matter how hard we look, we've never seen an atom big enough to be visible to the human eye, and therefore we imagine that we'll never ever see an atom big enough to be visible to the human eye.
0: Well, this takes us back to one of these skeptical type arguments as well about, well, just because you haven't seen Jesus rise from the dead after three days, that doesn't mean he's not going to do it tomorrow. It's one of these issues that just because it hasn't happened before, does that mean that anything is possible to happen tomorrow?
2: Just because we haven't heard the Sermon on the Mount yet doesn't mean that they won't be able to find a way to listen to it back in time.
0: Martin, in your reading, what's the proper response to just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen tomorrow?
1: I mean, it's just unlikely to happen, so then why should I worry about it or even consider it?
0: Well, it's probably, I'm trying to think of what the right, to, to expand that. I mean, it's not totally a matter of just because it's never happened to you. I mean, I guess it's never happened to you that you've died but it may happen to you tomorrow that you may die. You know that it's a possibility based on lots of other observations of other people, even though it has never happened to you personally. I guess it comes down to this question of how we evaluate things that we have not personally experienced ourselves and what credibility we give to different types of evidence.
2: There was a uh, creationist, I don't know if he's still in business or not, but he had this sort of little stage prop that he would use to try to explain things to people but explaining them very badly and it goes to the heart of what really matters here which is how you define the parameters of your claim and what you're expecting might happen or might not happen and what he was doing was he was air quotes disproving the theory of evolution by opening peanut butter jars and the idea being that you know every time i open a peanut butter jar there could be life spontaneously forming in the peanut butter jar, but I've never seen it before. Therefore, it's never going to happen. Well, nobody's claiming that life is going to spontaneously generate in a in a peanut butter jar. That's not the claim that the theory of evolution makes. It doesn't even make the claim of abiogenesis. But even if you were making a claim of abiogenesis, you don't have to be beholden to the idea that a uh, animal, not just an animal, but a complex multicellular animal should spawn spontaneously in a peanut butter jar. As in in most things in the world of creationism, this stems from just a failure to understand the basic principles of how these theories work. Mm -hmm. I, I say that merely to say that defining the parameters of the argument is really important when we talk about these things.
0: I guess in my experience in the legal framework, I think back to Martin in in criminal cases in the United States, the, the judge will tell the jury that you must find a person guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, which doesn't necessarily tell you anything when you hear that phrase. But sometimes I understand the judges will explain that phrase. They'll say that when I say you must find him guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, that means that what is a reasonable doubt? A doubt for which you can give a reason, and maybe at a very high level, that's kind of what we're talking about here, is that it's not sufficient to simply say it's possible because anything's possible. You always have to give a reasonable explanation for what your projection of something that could happen. You use the word probability. I guess that's probably the same thing. When you define something, whether it's probable or not, you're going to give an example, or a reason why you think something is reasonably possible that it could happen. You're not just going to blank out and say, anything's possible. That's not a reason. You've got to have some kind of evidence to support your possibility in order for it to be something to even consider.
2: One thing that I would uh, add to that is that the scientific community is, is uniquely poised to accept new information that comes in and Mm -hmm. the religious uh, theological community is uniquely badly positioned to accept new information. So the argument that, you know, something that's going to happen tomorrow is going to rock the foundation of science, um, that's not going to happen because science is sort of built around the idea of taking in new facts and assimilating them into what we already know to come up with a broader or more nuanced understanding of a thing. Whereas, Whereas new facts like, you know, the existence of Australia and its, and its unique animals is a real problem for the claims that were made with Noah's Ark and, and all the animals, you know, from around the world coming to the Ark two by two is, is how did the kangaroos get there? And so the discovery of new information, like the new world and this idea that there's peoples that we didn't even know existed who have not been for generation after generation, millennia after millennia, have not been evangelized by the gospel. And this is a huge, huge problem for Christianity. And if we discover life on other worlds, that will be a huge problem for Christianity, but it won't be a huge problem for the scientific community. So the ability to assimilate and reach out and collect new information is something that is going to happen. People are going to do it, whether you like it or not. And to be amenable to this new information and prepared to analyze it dispassionately is something that's going to be very important for your mental health if you're Really, really interested in these things, and you hang sort of your whole perception of life in the universe and the existence of God off of them.
0: Yeah, what we're discussing now, Joshua, what you just said, this is the issue we probably ought to wrap up today's episode by discussing because I I noticed in looking forward that the next passages we have on this limit of size on the bottom side, the infinite divisibility argument, that's going to carry on for some number of paragraphs uh, beyond even what Martin has read for today. So rather than go further into infinite divisibility today, let's leave the discussion focused where we are on this question of what's reasonable to consider as possible and inconceivability and imagination and things like that that we're discussing right now. Because what I heard you just say a moment ago is that it's important for your mental health to have a balanced understanding of these things that we're talking about. Just because atoms and void are the only things that are eternally the same, that doesn't mean that you should go throw yourself off a cliff because you don't have the eternal truth of religion to cling on to. So let's talk about bringing today's discussion to a close Martin, I don't want to pin you down until we've talked about if there's anything else you wanted to say for today. Uh, I have nothing to add. Okay. Joshua, concluding thoughts for today.
2: Yeah, I don't really have much to add. I always wanted when we read these texts and we kind of get really, really drilled down into the meaning of, of not just paragraphs, but sentences and words. Um, at some point, it's it's important, I think, to step back and take in the whole view and and what epicurus was trying to achieve when he when he wrote this letter but i don't have anything stunning or amazing to say about that either but something to think as we read through this is that he expected that this information that we're reading today even about the size of atoms and the function of smell and how that all that stuff he expected that this information would sort of liberate people from their fear of Death and from their fear of the gods. And for that reason, even though some of this stuff might seem very dry to some people, I don't think it seems dry to me necessarily, but I can see people finding this just impenetrably boring. The deeper purpose of it all is very interesting and, and very, very important. I just opened up a can of worms there, didn't I?
0: This is what I would add to that. It's important because you're not on a desert island. You're not just some chemist or young scientist on a desert island attempting to study chemistry and physics. The people that he was talking to were interested in practical ways to make life better. But they were living in a world in which these ideas were being debated for their philosophical implications. Again, I'm looking back at Galatians 4.9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and worthless principles or the weak and beggarly elements? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years, which reminds me of a discussion we're having that uh, Nate has been posting some material about the 20th observations. And of course, the Greeks had all sorts of other special holidays and so forth that the Christians would not have wanted to acknowledge. But this letter to Herodotus is intended, like you said, Joshua, to provide a basis for deep thinking and not just chemistry so that's why we're going through this and that's why epicurus wrote it so we can have a basis for responding to people who consider the study of the elements to be slavery i don't consider it to be slavery all right now i'm rambling for sure so hearing nothing else, we'll come back next week and continue to talk about the sizes of the atoms and what their implications are for day-to-day life in the modern world. Thanks for your time today. We'll be back next week. Thanks. Good. Bye. All right. Bye.